Au revoir. Welcome to Great Minds, a wine-centric podcast where two wine-loving friends take a look beyond what is in the glass. We dig a little deeper into the stories, the culture, and the history behind the wine. We even taste a little bit of wine while we're doing it. I'm Gina Birch. We get to taste wine with some pretty important wine people as well. I'm Julie Glenn. Today we're talking with one of the more prestigious people in the world of wine. We're talking via Zoom with Matthew Roland Billicart, CEO of the esteemed champagne house Billicart Salmon. He's not just CEO, he's the seventh generation of family business. Matthew, welcome to Great Minds. Hello, hello everyone. Hello, Julie and, and, and Gina. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to, to, to be with you long distance. I wish we could be there in person uh, having some bubbles, but uh, we'll, we'll have to do that in the, hopefully 2021 will be kinder for us to travel. Of course. Yeah. Well, okay. So you're the seventh generation, you know, that's, uh, we were talking earlier, that's kind of like royalty, right? So uh, tell us a little bit about your family history in Champagne. Sure. Um, well, look, we, yeah, we, we sort of uh, mini royalty in the middle of Champagne, really. We, we live in a small, our estate is in a small village right in the heartland of Champagne. Champagne is a reasonably large region, but we are at the core of, of that region. Our family has been there since at least the 16th century, according to the writing in the church. And we've always been sort of winemakers, merchants, wine growers. Um, and, and really, it's in 1818 when my great-great-great-great-grandfather, a gentleman called Nicolas-Francois Bidacart, marries a lady also from the village called Elizabeth Salmon, who became my great-great-great-grandmother, and they create the house of Bidacart Salmon. And since then, we've managed to pass it on from one generation to the next. So we are now one of the very last few independent family-owned, but also family-run, uh, Champagne Estate. So as you pointed out, I'm the direct descendant of that marriage uh, over the last, well, we're now 200 and, 202 years old. Well, I love how the um, old records and a lot of actual wine history in France is recorded in church documents. <laughs> yeah, I just find that so interesting because we don't they think were, about were, it a lot, but the church was the state. And they were often the most educated ones. So they were the ones who I think they had the record-keeping job, but also I think they, they knew how to write earlier than most. Well, I think when you have good wine and champagne, it is a spiritual experience too. Yeah, it does so. get you a little closer to God. <laughs> yes, it does. For <laughs> sure. So let's talk a little bit about champagne in general. You know, in the U.S., a lot of people mistakenly say champagne as a generic term for anything that sparkles. And I'm sure that just makes your skin crawl sometimes. Is that still a problem where people come in and say, oh, I had this great champagne from California or a wonderful champagne. It's called Prosecco. I mean, do you from get Italy. that sometimes? Uh, well... I don't. Always very brief encounter when that happens. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. We, yeah, yeah. We, I imagine we, the we, look we, on your face would probably shut people down immediately. Yeah. No, no. It's not that bad, but we look. We're fortunate that we focus on quite the high end of the champagne, so we tend to have people that uh, already know a fair amount. They don't have to be wine experts, but. Um, we are small, independent house, as I said, but the people 
are quite loyal to our house and they tend to know a fair bit about the history and how it all works. Uh, so I have to explain all of this. People know, and that was that goes to your question that Champagne only comes from a region called Champagne. That's really what makes it unique. Yes, of course, there are a specific method which is very different to a Prosecco for a range of different reasons on how we bring the bubbles into the bottle. But at its core, Champagne is that particular region to give you, well, I think you know, but it's about a couple of hours away from Paris, northeast. Um, and it's really uh, a quite distinctive uh, soil, mainly made of chalk. Um, it's it's work with three great varieties. We work with Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier. And, and perhaps other than the natural element, um, with the, the climate and everything. It's also a human ecosystem. You know, our region, even before the bubbles came in, we've been making wine since at least 2000 years. So the Romans were already using the wine from that Champagne region. And Champagne, as we know it today with the bubbles, came in late 18th century, beginning of 19th century. And when we started, or when my family started as a Champagne house, so the most recent really ch chapter of our winemaking history um, that was a novel thing uh, and that was 202 years ago so champagne is really unique terroir unique know-how and the people that have grown to have built that experience to be able to um to, to create what we believe is an exceptional wine i have a question real quick about um still versus sparkling and i'm just kind of curious what is the wine like when it's still before it has undergone its secondary fermentation? Do you taste it before you put it into um, in of course, a bottle? Yeah, of I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, we've just actually completed that exercise. It's what we call base wine tasting. So we, we make at Bilka to take you through our know-how. Um, other people work slightly differently. But ideally, we try and keep it to a parcel of wine or certainly a village for each wine. So each base wine keep their identity and we blend after. But it's the nearest comparable would be like a very young Burgundy. Um, certainly when we work with Chardonnay, because the same grape variety that you get in Burgundy. For our black grapes, the Pinot Noir and the Meunier, it's a little harder to define. It's a, it's a tenser version of, of a white wine. So think about it as a very tense and straight white wine um, because we know and that's the hard job with the base wine tasting is we have to project ourselves into how it's going to end up when we blend it with others and the, the bubbles bring a slightly different perception um, and also very different in Champagne compared to other wine regions we aging so a bubble bottle like all that we're going to taste later I have kept in my cellar four years before I sell it to you. So I have to project for what is going to be like when the bubbles come back and bring a degree of acidity and freshness in the palate, but also what it is going to be like in four years' time. And those feelings that but it, but it, are going to add to it as well. Yeah, but it tastes good, honestly. It, it, it tastes a lot better than I think it tasted 20 years ago because now the weather has got warmer and therefore we get better maturity with the grapes. There are some bad things about that, but in terms of base wine taste, it's it's better. You're, speaking of grapes, do you own any vineyards or are you all in contracts with growers? And uh, tell us no, a little do. bit about how that works with your champagne house. So, so 
So there is often a shortcut, which I, I think, to be fair, in the US, it's kind of that perception that the Goro only has his parcel and a, a house sort of buys it all. It, it, it's, it's unfortunately not as simple as that. Birkar roughly is a third owned, as in a third that we own the land. There is another third coming to 40% where we, my team, work the land of other people. So, but it's exactly the same. It's like if you're leasing a shop, it's still your shop. Uh, it's just you pay a rent. And then the last 30% or so is where we are on long-term contract with families that work based on an established charter of how they work. Uh, and often these relationship that we have with these families last multi-generations. So some of them have been trained by us um, and they are untrusted with working independently because we know they're going to work into a way which is um, aligned with what we would be doing if, if we owned certain parcels. Does having that type of the vinification happens with you, some of the growing happens by people who specialize in just the growing. Does that type of specialization help elevate the end product in the end? Like a grower knows growing and the winemaker knows winemaking. Having that kind no. of... Does that help specialize it? Well, no, I think it's more... Well, it helps in a slightly different way to what you're describing because I think it could help with some people that don't own or don't work any vineyards and I think you're right they specialize in a certain way because we either own or run two-thirds we think we know what we're doing when it comes to working a vineyard um, what does help us is slightly different uh, I work around in 40 villages 20 kilometer radius around my village okay however I sometimes in certain villages which I think bring something very helpful of to a um, to a blend present in that particular village and that particular village may have a more mineral stance or a more fruitier stance than the other one next door so I have a choice to make at that stage either I ignore that village which I think would be a mistake because I won't be making as good a wine as if we could have a portion of that parcel or village or I find a partner who owns land there who work in a way which is great quality in terms of viticulture and I try and align him or we align to one another. And that's really what we've been doing. Um, particularly in the Grand Cru where we're particularly strong. There are certain um, there are certain types, certain types of parcels or type of wine where we need help because we were growers at the start, but we are become super growers in that we don't have enough land relative to what we're capable of, of vinifying. So that's really what we've been doing. Partnering with, with people that are like-minded and have parcels that are different and complementary to what we have naturally. Let's talk about some of the wine. So you have a new Brut Nature, uh, and that's what we're starting off with. And cheers, by the way. <laughs> Jean. So this is brand new to the U.S. market. It was just released. Tell us yep, about yep. this particular wine that people can get right now for the holidays. Yeah, so that's, um, so Brut Nature means no sugar added at the disgorgement. Disgorgement is when you remove the dead yeast of the bottle before, or a few months before we, sh we ship them. Brut Nature is designed to be a very pure, fresh, and crisp expression of champagne. Um, 
particularly with the idea of aperitif or to be paired with uh, sort of shellfish, oysters, that kind of thing. That's kind of very focused in, in that part of what it can bring. In terms of how it's made is with a blend of the three grape varieties, okay, where it starts to be a bit different is we use 10 different harvests. Um, so it's 10 different years in that bottle. So it's a non-vintage, but we go a lot for, a lot uh, with a lot older wines because when you remove the sugar from that little bit, you lose a little bit of the roundness in the back palate. And I really don't like Brut Nature that overly acidic. So we've tried to create a Brut Nature that is not overly acidic. And we've done that by using more harvest, 10 different harvests, and age it in the bottle longer than what we would normally do for our Brut Reserve. So that's been 10 different harvests, four years in the bottle before it's got to you. And whilst it's keeping its purity and its freshness, it's still reasonably round and balanced, which is what we wanted to create. And that's a it's taken us so long to be able to release that because I didn't want to put just a Brut Nature label because it sounds fancy. It's been years in the making to be able to get to that level. So we felt confident to remove completely the sugar to be able to give you a balanced wine. What, sorry? What inspired you to want to add this to the portfolio? What made you feel like this is something that you needed? Yeah. Frankly, I like this style. Um, I like the style of, of sort of fresh crisps, very targeted, very clean. I love this wine as the first wine I taste. I tend to go through multiple bottles, not on my own, when I, obviously I share, but, um, <laughs> but it's, a great, it's a great palate setter. It sort of sets you the right tone. It's very fresh and it creates that impression. And, and whilst I do love, for example, on the shellfish, a Blanc de Blanc, or so a Chardonnay only, it's typically richer, where I wanted that to be that precision and really show our know-how in the winemaking. So that's really that, what we've, we've done with that I, I love this. I look at that green apple, and it's so nice and crisp, like you said, and it makes me salivate a little in the back, mm -hmm. so a little salinity. So when you said the oysters and... And all of that, I could totally see where, yeah. or, or some seafood, even some cheeses. But and what I like about this too, since it doesn't have any sugar, it's low calorie, right? So it's better for it, us. It, <laughs> the main generally is low calorie because even when we talk about sugar, it's we talk about five gram a liter. That's a quarter of a teaspoon. So it's nothing in a in a big bottle. But you're right. They, that's the one. That's almost the one you must drink when you're on a diet. You have to have it for New Year's Eve so you can get a jump start on the New right. Year's resolutions, you know, to keep those calories down. I get a little lime Just in here to drink more. Yeah, really. So this retails for around $60 US, um, depending on where you get it and who's <laughs> selling it. But I, I think it's definitely. So let's talk then a little bit about the classifications because we say Brut Nature has zero sugar. What are the other ones? A lot of people get confused when they're looking at um, champagne's where you have sec and demi-sec and brute. So can extra you kind of, brute, yeah. Extra brute, which is like. So to, 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 to give you an idea, so the one you see more commonly are brute or extra brute. Now you see a bit of brute nature. So brute is between, which is the main category, is between seven and 13 grams a liter. Extra brute is between, um, well, 0 0.5 or 0 0.1 and, and seven. And Brut Nature is zero. 
okay? And we are not talking about total sugar as well. This is sugar added. Now, I think that's where you see sometimes differences or you perceive slightly different things, the difference between residual sugar and the total sugar. Because we have, we have our particular way of fermenting with this core fermentation, we have zero residual sugar. So really the only sugar you're going to get is when we add it. Hence, that brute nature is zero, zero. Or, and then most of our cuvées are brute at the low end of brute. So they tend to be close to seven, seven, eight. And we have a number of um, extra brute wine as well. Sometimes people make a mistake of thinking it's because it's brute nature that's better or an extra brute is better than a brute. Honestly, it's not. Um, if you really want to be technical, between zero and four, your palate is incapable of tasting sugar. So frankly, it's a, it's a non-argument below four, between zero and four. And the difference is sometimes is much more in the balance of the wine. So we are not people that argue that make it low dosage and we'll pretend it's better. It's about finding the balance. Losage have been, dosage have been coming down. Sugar levels have been coming down for two reasons. I think people's taste are, are wanting less sugary drinks. But also maturity levels that we're able to reach at the harvest is a lot higher than it used to be. And therefore, if we were doing no sugar on wines that were done 10 or 20 years ago, I don't think you'd like them. You'd find them overly acidic and we would not be able to find a balance. Now we get more warmth and more maturity in the grapes. We're able to and create the balance. But really, the balance in the wine is a lot more important than the technical sheet. I think technical sheet make you make big mistakes in terms of taste. And as a house, we really, we always start from scratch every harvest to achieve the best wine, not the technical sheet. So when we see dry and extra dry, those are the ones that, have, for, for people listening, that's a misnomer. It's not really dry. It's, that's where we have some of the more sugar. Yeah, that's the absolute contrary. I wouldn't even be able to tell you how many grams is that. I think it's over 30. I think um, Demisec, I think it's so. Yeah, yeah, Demisec is over 24, if I'm not mistaken, 22. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that, that must be right. We don't, we don't make a lot of that. I mean, we don't do dry and extra dry. But you're really in a very different of champagne. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> you don't do a demi-sec, I'm guessing. We, we do a little bit, but I think it's at 24 grams from memory. Oh, there's a... All right. So now we're moving along. This one is my favorite. So we're going to the rosé next. You, you're faster than me. I'm opening the bottle. Ah, oh, we, we opened we opened. before we got We here. were ready. Because we didn't want to embarrassingly make the loud pop sound. I know we're supposed to do it. <laughs> there oh, I'll do that for you. Oh, Woo! It's a little pop. That's not bad. You know what? And it's I know that you're not, you're supposed to be like a whisper and a kiss when you open it, but there's something about that sound popping up before that it's just I think it's like a Pavlovian response. I hear that and I just my eyes light up and I sit up because I know I know your tail is wagging. Yeah, <laughs> because it's like we're <laughs> celebrating and it's and I love bubbles and it just makes me excited and anticipate what's going to be in our glass. And right now we've got this, your rosé is iconic. Yeah, I mean, you've been making so that good. since, what, the mid-1800s? Yeah, that's right. Well, not um, you personally, but yeah. I mean, I mean no, yeah, thank you. That's very kind. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've be, we know we've been making rosé since at least 1840. And the reason why we know that is from that date, we have a letter of a customer 
asking more rosé. So we must have been making it before, but we don't know quite sure when. Um, so rosé has always been in our DNA. Um, however, my great uncle, so the fifth generation of my family in the 60s, changed our approach. You have to know that champagne rosé, frankly, until the 90s, wasn't that popular. It was sometimes seen as a poor cousin of champagne because it was a sign that fermentation had not been done right. But it, it took as an objective to create a different type of rosé, a rosé that, that favored finesse, elegance, and freshness, where before rosé, and still some of them are quite vinous and rich, and we've always, well, since the 60s, stayed away from that style. So this is a blend rosé. This is one where we blend a white wine, white champagne blend, the base wine blend that we talked about, with a little bit of red wine. So this is, the, the main grape in that one is Chardonnay to keep the lightness and the freshness. And we add about 7% of our own red wine, which is 100% Pinot Noir. And we make that, this is from very old vines, 50 to 80 years old vines, where we produce a very deep Pinot Noir, which we make in stainless steel tanks to be able to avoid or remove as much of the tannins as possible. What we're trying to get with the rosé is uh, the DNA of our house is finesse, elegance, and balance. Okay, that's what we're trying to get in all our cuvées. With rosé, it's we need to be able to get to a a blend between the red fruits in the front, which is the signature of a rosé, and the citrus in the back palate that makes you want more. You know, because if you just make red fruit, it's going to feel heavy. It's going to feel sugary. So it's red fruit at the start, citrus at the back. And hopefully trying to find that, when, when we explain it, that sounds simple, but it's the cuvee that possibly we spend the most time making because you have to get immaculate red wine, get it to something which is with a white wine, then try and find the right balance between the two. That's so a lot no of wine making on the way. There's no Pinot Meunier in this one, in the rosé. Just there's a little. In the white blend. So oh, it's okay. 40% 30% Meunier, 30% Pinot Noir. Because oh, okay. Meunier brings the fruitiness and the, and the crispness. If, if you want to keep keeping it quite high level, um, Chardonnay is the citrus and the freshness, particularly in the back palette. Pinot Noir is the depth and the structure. Meunier is the fruitiness and the roundness. None of these adjectives on their own make it an exceptional wine. That's where blending, depending on the characteristic of the cuvee, is like a teamwork, right? One person can be great, a great solace, but really it's only as a team that you achieve great things. And it's a bit like that when you blend different villages and different grape variety. That's what we play. That's kind of our teamwork with, with, with um, our, our vineyard. You know, and I love that. I love that analogy. It's a, of a teamwork. Um, this to me is so balanced, and it's so it's seamless, and it's always been one of my favorite um, champagne rosés. Now, though, I said that you want to call it champagne rosé, not a rosé champagne. You're specific in how you put those two. Why is that? Because of the that's the point I was making to you about the finesse and the elegance. We don't make that. I mean, we respect everybody's taste and we don't have to all agree on that. And that's absolutely fine. That's what makes life so interesting. 
but we are not going for the rich rosé approach. We are more like, using an analogy, I had this discussion with a great wine critic not so long ago. We are the Provence version of Champagne, you know, the light and fruity, and we make no apology for that. We still think you can make a very serious wine, which is great for aperitif and for food, which people sometimes forget, um, whilst keeping your identity on the fresh and the fruitiness. Because yes, it's great for aperitif, but it pairs fantastically well with sashimis and sushis. Uh, the Italians love it with pizza and very si um, finely sliced uh, parma ham. So people forget, and obviously the desserts with the raspberries and all that kind of good stuff. But it can be a gastronomy wine. It's not just pink because it looks pretty. It's pink because it has a distinctive identity. And yes, being fresh and fruity and pleasant is fine. And we, we're happy with the identity. I'm happy with the identity. <laughs> Me too. Remember we went to that champagne wine dinner and it had champagne paired with every single course. Right. It was spectacular. And it can really uh, do wonders when paired well with food. It can really help and elevate the food. Right. And I think that's where a lot of people, you know, we're in the holidays and people want to look at it as a, as a festive and, and toasting and cheersing. But this is really something that you could start with, have the main course with, and then finish up with as well because you've got so many different types and, and we're going to be trying another one coming up here in a minute. So oh, I'm excited yeah. to talk about the next one. Oh yeah. Soubois. Ah, uh, Soubois. When you see the other two, we've talked about them being capable of being with food. Soubois is almost criminal not to pair with food. So it's quite different. The, the, the other ones are 75 or 50% aperitif, 50% food. This is 75% almost should have should be had with food um as opposed to um Hummus. on its own or certainly as a first as the label sort of gives a clue of i hopefully you have that one i think it's sort of is the the label is made of wood it is real wood so the identity of that cuvee is 100 percent vinified in oak barrels so the first fermentation, you know, the still wine, we ferment in oak barrels. They are Burgundian barrels. They are old barrels because we don't want the wine to be oaky. However, what we want to get from the wine vinified in the barrels is the richness and the roundness and the depth that you cannot get when you work in stainless steel tanks. So it's a, it's a blend of the three grape variety in equal parts with a significant proportion of Premier and Grand Cru, because we want vines and grapes with great power to be able to balance the oakiness of the, of the barrel and a very long aging in the bottle. So the bottle we shipped last in the US, they'd been in the bottle for 10 years. So it's normally minimum 10, but the last batch we sent was 10. So it's older than a lot of vintage champagne on the market. And what you get is a much richer, much more complex um, uh, than you typically get, certainly like the other two. So Soubois means undergrowth. We looked it up. So why, <laughs> is, it, why is that a, a wine term? No, you, you're, you're right. Soubois means, yeah, underwood. Uh, it can mean, in French, it means two things, but for that, it means 
the, when you start in the forest, you know, before you get into the big trees, you get that little bit with the, the haze and, and the high grass. That means that. But la mise sous bois in French means when you top up a barrel, move the air and therefore avoid oxidation. So this cuvee is called for that expression, which is a winemaking expression. Mise sous bois is something. Necessarily drink a Provence rose when it's minus 10 outside, right? Or it's not going to be your go to. It's the same for Soubois. It's really the one that um, you have on poultry, stuffed poultry works great. Anything with mushrooms, hard cheeses, charcuterie, it's really a great one. Um, so for, for that holiday season, that turkey, if you, if you want to experiment with pairing with champagne, Soubois is the one that's before you hit the big prestige cuvées, which, uh, you know, they are fantastic, but it's a different price point. The Soubois is the one that's going to give you both a surprising and exceptional experience in terms of taste, we think. I love it. And you guys are doing, um, you have a new, um, I was just reading something new for the holidays. It's a, it's a, uh, a combination box with this one, an eco-friendly box with um, that, that this one is, there's three different cuvées, including this. Is that correct? That we can yeah, get? We, we, you're absolutely right. So eco-friendly, all the ink is organic and all, all this stuff where we put three cuvées in because, you know, one bottle, you always wonder why you didn't buy another one. So yes. <laughs> we put three, three and we put a rosé, which a lot of people is our most well-known cuvée. Blonde de Blonde, 100% Chardonnay version and the Soubois. And really with that, you can really travel through and experience very different types of tastes whilst you're still in Champagne. So that's really an opportunity for people to discover that whilst it's all called Champagne, it's quite different tastes depending on the label you go for. And we don't have this with us, but you have another new release. It's 100% um, Meunier. Yeah, we did. That, yeah, that's... that's a, <laughs> That's almost more than a release. It's, a, it's an experiment. Um, so our house experiments every year to try and continue to further improve. So it can be different methods in the vineyard, can be different vinification method. And when I took over the company in, in, in late 18, um, I, we obviously reviewed with the tasting committee all the wines that were in the cellar, as we do regularly. And some of these experiments were too good to be put back into a tank. So I decided that to do a very small batch, so it's, it's not many bottles and it's all, all gone. Within a month, I'd sold everything. I would love to try that. I've had one champagne that was made all of Petit Meunier and I thought it was really interesting. It was strangely spicy. It was really, it was, it had some like, you know, I don't know, baking spices to it. Really? And it was really, really interesting. Oh, this has been so good. Yeah, How it's is different, it? different. What, what does the Meunier taste like all by itself? To you? I mean, is it one that... What do you think of it? I mean, obviously you it like it enough to put it in a bottle. 
I think it's it's a great variety that suffers from a perception that's a bit rough around the edges. We don't agree with that. We think that's a great generalization. Okay, and often that's what the world suffers on. People take shortcuts on everything. Um, the way we vinify all our wines is with a cold temperature fermentation. And we're very specific and particular about what villages we do it from. And really what we were trying to showcase with that rendezvous number one, the 100% Meunier, is you can get finesse and elegance in Meunier. It just depends how you work with it. And if you select the right terroir. So ours, yes, has the freshness and the roundness and the fruitiness of Meunier, but it's very, very elegant. Um, and I shared it with a few friend winemakers that work with Meunier and, and they're great winemakers, but they just have a different approach and a different identity to us. And they said, yeah, we can taste. They said we can taste his Birkar before you taste his Meunier because they, <laughs> they recognize the DNA of finesse and elegance. And they said, really, what you see is your identity. And then we guess his Meunier. Because That's Birkar quite a compliment. That is. It's very complimentary. It's a good compliment. It really is. It has to feel good coming from fellow winemakers saying, well, I definitely feel the stamp yeah. of the house. Yeah. And then also the Meunier. Yes. Look, we, 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 we love all ideas. Everybody has different tastes. And I think we should stop. I get sometimes frustrated by saying, which one is the best one? Are you better? Than I don't know. The most important thing is what's best for you. Which one are you looking and having a sip of is saying, I'm having a bloody good time. And why do we have to pick one? I want everything. I, I hate when someone says you have to pick one. Like, why? Why can't I have it all? Why not? Which one's your favorite? Yeah. Everything. It, yeah. it, <laughs> with, I agree with all of that. I think we're trying to make things a bit too black and white. Gosh, this has been great. Matthew Roland Billicart is, again, the CEO of the esteemed champagne house, Billicart Salmon. And you do pronounce the L or do you not, typically? Because in, in the U.S., we have uh, we always struggle with it, uh, how to pronounce that part. Well, I'm, I don't want to overdo the L, but then I don't want to not use the L. And then right. I end up starting calling it salmon, which is, right. as we a know, fish. a fish. <laughs> and so then we called it Billicart Walleye. Yeah. <laughs> Being, you know, the kind of salmon. So long as we understand each other, that's all fine. As long as we're getting the right wine. <laughs> so he's not, he's not telling us yeah, the right yeah. way. <laughs> Thank no, you so no, much. But, uh, but, uh, yeah. Here in France, it's often short. They, they cut the word. So they say Bilcar. They don't say Bilcar Salmon, although it's the same, it's the same label. Um, it's the same look. We, in French, we would say Mathieu Roland Bilcar. But so long as it sounds vaguely in a way I can understand and I know it's me, that's fine. I'll put my hand up. <laughs> oh, well, we love your wines thank you so much keep doing what you're doing and we hope to actually see you in person when we can all travel I guess everything's uh, as, as okay as it can be in Champagne right now yeah we, we're lucky that um, nobody, everybody is healthy or haven't had any kind of severe uh, problems and we keep our finger crossed that stays that way for as long as possible yeah, thank you again so much for talking with us. And it's been great to thank you for for asking us to do this. It's been a great pleasure. 
Thanks so much. Great Minds is produced at WGCU Studios on FGCU campus in Fort Myers, Florida. Our producer for online media is Tara Callaghan. Great Minds theme music is from Victor and Penny. The song is You'd Be So Nice to Come Home To by Cole Porter. To get in touch with us, check out greatminds.org, or you can always call the Grapeline and ask a wine question that we can address on a future show. That number is 707-200-3632. For Julie Glenn, I'm Gina Birch. Thanks for listening. Burning above.